Chapter 17 Young Folk's History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon, GaryBohannon.com. Young Folk's History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Preparing for a New Campaign. The winter and spring months that followed were busy ones for both nations engaged in the contest. In England there was still a feeling of strong confidence that the rebellion would soon be crushed, and the same confident spirit was manifest among the British soldiers and their allies in America. Some of the Hessian soldiers, it is true, had been induced to desert by the promise which the Americans had caused to be written out on small bits of paper and enclosed in little packages of tobacco that they took pains to have scattered among the Dutch butchers whereby a home and a goodly number of untilled acres should be given to each soldier who withdrew from the service of King George, but the main body was still intact. Congress and those who had charge of the finances were busy with their own problems, and Benjamin Franklin had gone to France to try to induce that nation to assist the colonies in their efforts to gain their freedom. Franklin himself became very popular with many of the leading Frenchmen, though the King of France probably did not favor him overmuch. With many, the inducement to help America was born not of a love for that land so much, as of a bitter hatred for England. But at this time the aid largely consisted of promises, and of sometimes turning a blind eye toward the American privateers, many of which were fitted out or found a place of refuge among the ports of France. Practically, the newly formed states had no navy, but along the coast, particularly in New England, were many daring, hardy sailors, whose services in the battles of Long Island and Trenton we have already related. Others of these men were given commissions as privateers in the hope that by preying upon the commerce of Great Britain, the mother country would the sooner be brought to see that the Americans were in deadly earnest. Indeed, Franklin had carried with him on his voyage to France a number of such blank commissions signed by John Hancock as President of the Congress, and he was to use his own good judgment in filling them out. Ezekiel Hopkins, John Paul Jones, and others whose names and deeds we shall have occasion to refer to elsewhere were among these daring privateers, and so bold had been their deeds that the insurance rates on English shipping became very high, and many of the French vessels were at this time engaged in carrying English trade. Perhaps one little story will better illustrate the conditions than any detailed account could do. In the crew of one of these American vessels, the Reprisal, was a young sailor named Conningham a keen, daring young man, not twenty-five years of age. So successful had he been in escaping from the English prisons when he was captured, and so confident were his superiors in his ability, that he was induced to take command of one of the vessels of the fleet, then being fitted out at Dunkirk for privateering purposes. Already his name had become a familiar one to the English, and he was familiarly known as the Arch-Rebel and pictures of him representing him not as he was, a slim, dapper young fellow, but as a great, coarse, roistering pirate, were stuck up in the shop windows of London, and even the nursemaids were accustomed to point to them to frighten the children in their care. Indeed, it is said that one time, when he had just escaped from an English prison, he joined the crowd in front of one window, and with them gazed at what was supposed to be a picture of Conningham the arch-rebel, but no one detected the resemblance, and so he went free. Early in the spring of 1777 he set sail from Dunkirk in the privateer Surprise, and in less than a week had captured the Joseph, 
a trim British brig, and a packet, the Prince of Orange. When he sailed back to France, the Englishman made such a time over his exploits that the Frenchman compelled him to give up the prizes and his prisoners, and even declared that he and his own men must also be held as prisoners of the English. That was a great state of affairs in Conningham's eyes, and in the eyes of others, too, for the matter of that. But before the English man-of-war arrived to carry him to England, through the aid of Ben Franklin and some of the Frenchmen, he assembled a new crew and set sail in the Revenge, and so escaped. The purpose of the Revenge was to intercept the English transports carrying Hessians to America, but though he failed to take any Hessians, off the West Indies he fell in with an English schooner and took that. Among his prisoners were four young American ladies, who were naturally greatly frightened when they discovered that they were in the hands of the terrible Conningham, the arch-rebel. However, they soon recovered from their terror, at least one of them did, for not long afterwards she became the wife of the privateer. So sturdy a lass was she that afterward, when her husband was taken again by the British, and this time they boasted that nothing could save him from the hanging they declared he deserved, she herself went to see Washington, and in person begged of Congress for help for her husband. Her plea prevailed, and Congress authorized Washington to retaliate and hang a British captain, if Captain Conningham should be harmed. Perhaps it is not necessary to relate that the arch-rebel was not hanged. In New York, the captive American general, Charles Lee, was plotting with Howe and trying to show him just how he could gain an easy victory over Washington, the fox. Howe listened, though what he himself must have thought of his prisoner no one knows. But later events show that after a trial he abandoned Lee's suggestions and followed his own plans, with greater success than otherwise he could have gained. The American army was being strengthened somewhat, that is, strengthened as much as a Congress without money and men without experience could accomplish, and all were looking forward to a springtime of 1777, with a full realization that the struggle was only begun. Some of the efforts were made to strengthen the American cause on the sea, and in November 1776, it had been decided that the equivalent offices of the naval force should be that an admiral should rank as a general, a vice-admiral as a lieutenant-general, rear-admiral as major-general, commodore as brigadier-general, captain of a forty-gun ship and upward as a colonel, captain of a ship of ten to twenty guns as a major, and lieutenant as a captain. The pay of the various officers had been fixed as follows per month. Major-general, $166, except when he was acting in a separate department, and then it was to be $330. Brigadier-general, $125. Adjutant General, $125. Commissary General, $80. Quartermaster General, $80. His Deputy, $40. Paymaster General, $100. His Deputy, $50. Chief Engineer, $60. Three Aides-de-Camp for the General, each $33. His Secretary, $66. And Commissary of the Musters, $40. Certain it is that it was not the money they received that was the inducement of the officers of the Continental Army. And yet it would be hardly just to suppose that every soldier was an ardent patriot, for such was not the case. Though there were many men fighting for freedom for its own sake, there were others who had no such patriotic motives, and out of this varying material, and the petty jealousies between colonies and men, and treachery on the part of some of the leaders, was to be constructed an army that should ensure the liberty of the men of America. The real cause of wonder is that Washington ever could have done what he did. The year of 1777 was to be a trying one. Carleton had practically failed in the preceding year to open the way along Lake Champlain from Montreal to Albany and New York. 
This project was dear to the hearts of many of the British leaders, and this year the attempt was to be made under the leadership of a man who if words, and particularly his own words were to be believed, did not know the meaning of failure. John Burgoyne Britons never retreat, was a favorite expression with him, but he was to learn that every rule has its exception, and this statement, though it had been proved to be true many a time, was not to be different from others. General John Burgoyne, almost from his boyhood days, had been in the service of the British Army, and had particularly distinguished himself in the War of Portugal with Spain when England had been aiding the former nation. He was a man of a genial nature, made friends easily, and was particularly proud of the literary work he had done. For he had written one or two plays and some poems which were greatly admired in the court of King George, with whom Burgoyne was a favorite. He had no small talent as a general, too, but he was so supremely confident of his own ability and so thoroughly despised the country bumpkins who opposed him that his very overconfidence led to his failure. When Lord George Germain, after listening to the plan Burgoyne laid before him, for Burgoyne had previously been in America and was at Boston when the Battle of Bunker Hill occurred, secured for him, through his influence with the king, the command of the force which was to make the invasion from Canada, there was no happier man in the British army than he, and many were his boasts as to what he would accomplish. It was well he did his boasting before his campaign, for he had no opportunity afterward. End of chapter 17